You're listening to Lost or Found, the podcast where we think about how we can live healthier, happier, and more fulfilled lives. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michelle Choi. Thanks for listening to the show today. It's going to be an interesting episode with my friend, Sola Adelowo. Some people have been telling me that the topics for this podcast have been pretty heavy recently. And as I look back, I have to agree. One of the things that shocked me the most when I had transitioned my career from a hospital doctor to a primary care doctor, meaning working in the office, was a number of people who would cry during their office visit, even when they had never met me before. Was it the fact that I asked them a question? Or was it because I acknowledged how they looked and felt to me? Was it because I looked more kind than that of an asshole? The door closes and it's just you, the patient, and the computer. My first year as a primary care doctor, I was overwhelmed by the number of people that cried, women and men both. And sometimes if it was really bad enough, I would also feel the heaviness in my chest And that was worrisome to me that I could feel overwhelmed to that degree from someone else's pain. In the hospital setting, it's different. A patient comes in for an acute reason, a stroke, heart failure, a heart attack, a bad skin infection, or pneumonia, and you are focused on treating that one major problem because the patient's life at that moment depends on it. But when you are out and about in the world, and your health is not at a life-threatening standpoint, I think life feels like we are juggling the components of our life, and it's hard to maintain that balance. Maybe we are more likely to drop a ball or two or three if we have too many balls that we are juggling, and if we are not paying enough attention to the ball that is ready to drop. Quite honestly, I started to think about humanity more in the primary care setting. When someone walks down the hallway, even in a medical clinic, most look okay on the outside. They look well put together. But if you go into the same room as a person, the door closes, and you ask some of the right questions, it's amazing how these fragile walls to protect oneself can easily fall down. I've talked about my own anxieties and self-doubt on the podcast. And I realize how many of us have moments or long moments in our lives when we don't feel good and are really anxious, depressed, stressed, and overwhelmed. Some of us are barely holding on to our lives. But throughout this, most of us look okay on the outside and out in the world, like a good, clean, sharp, bright Instagram photo. But that's not reality. Reality is much more complex. Just because you see happy things on social media does not really mean the person in the picture is happy. And that's what I saw behind closed doors in the office. A beautiful woman or a composed-looking man could be falling apart on the inside. But they're not alone. I felt like that too. Then I started to wonder, what's the point of looking that good on the outside if one feels shattered or emotionally empty on the inside? It's literally like driving a really nice car without any gas. You can't go anywhere. This is a question that I would ask my patients a lot. Why do we remember to fill up our cars with gas, but neglect our human bodies and ourselves? Why aren't we addressing our own needs right now to get to where we want to go? And many of us carry pain. And we think because we're adults, or because it happened several years ago, it's not important, or it's just stress, and we carry it around like a badge of honor. That's not cool. Stress can literally kill you, not immediately, but it will if you don't deal with it. And we call that living. But what if that pain that we continue to carry is taking up most of the car like a gigantic, stinky marshmallow, such that when we're driving, We're not fully in the driver's seat. We should be in the driver's seat, but due to the sheer overwhelming pain that we keep on trying to suppress, our bodies are pushed to the back or lunged to the passenger seat 
and we can't see where we're going. I hope that you are not carrying pain, but I promise you, many people are, and this is just from my experience. Just because a person is agreeable or laughing all the time does not mean they are laughing all the time. A person who's an asshole may be the one who is more honest. Or why have your thoughts been so negative? Why are you drinking so much? We don't have to forever carry our pain. And as you can see from the podcast, there are many different forms of pain. There's depression, anxiety, stress. There's grief. There's abuse. There's also the self-belittling that doctors do to themselves that have real consequences. And don't doctors look put together? Well, I'll tell you the truth. We are not. But how do we even begin to think about getting rid of the pain if we don't acknowledge it? If we don't look at it in the eye and say, no, more. And once we look at it in the eye, the work doesn't stop there. We have to look at all the balls that we're juggling in our lives. Do we have to take some balls out initially and then eventually put some right ones in? Taking care of ourselves is complex and requires a combination of modalities. There's usually not one answer. It can involve counseling, sometimes medicine, lots of reflection, movement, better nutrition, cutting out the stuff that makes you sick, good and healthy connections, and even the faith and the hope for what will be. When we take care of ourselves, we help the fear in our lives to get out of the driver's seat. And just because you did it for a week doesn't mean you stop because it's not working. You keep on doing it until you see and feel real change. Things that happen immediately is oftentimes not real change. Becoming takes time, effort, and dedication, like what Michelle Obama writes about in her autobiography. My hope through the podcast and my work is that we all learn to really live. My hope is that all of us, through the work that we do, can live our fullest, our most meaningful life. Will it be easy? You and I know the answer is no, but it will be totally worth it. And today, I'm really grateful to have the chance to talk with my friend, Sola Odelowo. I think sometimes in life, we really can't imagine what it's like to be someone unless we are literally in their shoes. Explicit and implicit bias exists. Racism exists. Sola and I are college friends, and we reconnected over Facebook when I went back on social media to spread the podcast. And by the way, if you're liking the podcast, please help a sister out and tell your friends and leave us a great review. But anyway, as we reconnected and were chatting, she had told me of an incident that happened to her as she was leaving her city where she was called the N-word by an adult male, which she also describes in the interview. So, we decided to talk about it, and this is how this interview came about. Sola Adelowo is an American inspirational leader, executive coach, and mentor who enjoys helping people reveal their truest self in the midst of professional and personal expectations. Her unique life experiences are what led her to launch ImageCube in Indiana to help clients master and amplify their executive presence. Her Nigerian ancestry inspired her path into entrepreneurship, and she received her master's in critical urbanisms from University of Basel in Switzerland with her research studies on workplace relationships from the University of Cape Town in South Africa, and has traveled to over 20 countries. And from my own experience, Sola was always admired by many in college, and literally a friend to all. She has always held her unique perspective and presence. There's just something about Sola. Welcome to Lost or Found, Sola Odelowo. I'm so honored and grateful that you're joining the show today. Thank you, Miss Michelle, and it's a pleasure to see you. And before we begin, Sola, can you tell us about yourself? Sure. So um, 
Well, we went to college together. That's how we know each other. Um, I am living in Switzerland. I am American. And um, I had a career, had a corporate career before for like 10 years. And then after my corporate career, um, I was an entrepreneur for another 10 years where I was an executive coach. I started my own business called Image Cube. And I was in Indianapolis, so my corporate career took me from Boston to Chicago to Indianapolis. And when I was in Indianapolis, I started Image Cube. And then in 2016, I moved from Indianapolis to Switzerland and uh, came to Switzerland to figure out what my next chapter was going to be. And then eventually, I started graduate school at the University of Basel and got my master's in critical urbanisms. And that program took me to South Africa. So I did some of my research in South Africa. I lived there for six months. And then um, came back, finished my program last fall. So the fall of 2020. And, uh, and then now I'm gonna be starting a new adventure in training and development for a European company. So that's my very short bio. <laughs> Wonderful. And as we begin our discussion today about being Black in America, Sola, what's it like to be Black in America? That's a very big question. Um, you know, it, it's it's ironic that you would ask that question because one, um, at least now that this podcast is being recorded is, um, you know, we just in the United States, we have a new vice president um, who is Black and Asian. She's Southeast Asian and, and it's Kamala Harris and it's a moment, it's a momentous um, occurrence that I probably never thought would happen. Um, but I think in my humble opinion, I mean, blackness and being black in America is, uh, I just feel like it's so, it's so, uh, has so many different layers and I think for me, as the child of two Nigerians who was who lived in Nigeria, grew up in the United States, now lives in Europe, has lived in on the continent more than you know been to the continent multiple times, it's really hard to reconcile that concept, especially because I think the American definition of of being a Black American beyond you know hip hop music or our style. Um, I don't know if it's fully understood or fully appreciated. Um, for me, as a Black American woman, I think there is a way that we carry ourselves um, that um, appreciates our history, that acknowledges um, those who've come before us, um, that celebrates who we are as a people, the culture, um, how we do things, how we see things, how we speak, um, how we express ourselves. There's a pride in that. Um, and I think that's what it means for me, at least, to be a Black woman in America. Um, and I think I probably understand it more so living in Europe or living in Switzerland, just because Sometimes that flavor is just not there. It, actually, that flavor is not there. <laughs> I'll just be honest. It's, it doesn't exist in Switzerland. Um, but, I mean, it's not a bad thing. It's just, it does, it's just not here. But it does make going home that much more, that much sweeter. Because it's something that once, when I'm home and, you know, I see another black woman and she's looking fly and I could just give her a thumbs up and she knows exactly what I'm talking about because <laughs> she's working it out and I'm appreciating it. And you're also a stylist and you <laughs> notice beauty all the time. I do. I love uh, that, Sola, you know, like what you were describing, like to be who you are, but also to hopefully feel included to belong, you know, since we're all here together. Exactly. Exactly. You know? Mm-hmm. You know, like our constitution states that all men and hopefully women are created equal. Mm -hmm. You know, do you feel like your rights are honored as an American? Mm, I mean, I think our rights are honored. I think, again, I think what has shaped a lot of how I see my Americanness 
it did not, I, I would say my understanding probably did not exist as much living in the United States. I think when you leave the United States and you're living in a different culture. So for me, living in Switzerland um, and realizing that, oh, with my American passport, I can travel to a lot of places. Because of the Constitution, um, you know, it's granted those rights to be able to um, to really enjoy the, the fruits of having uh, a U.S. passport and being able to travel all over. But I think that, you know, even though it says that we're all created equal, how rules are applied in the U.S., particularly with who gets access to what opportunities, things like that are not equal. You know, we, we all know that they're not equal. Some people have more access than others. Um, who you know, and, you know, that could be for, um, for jobs. It could be for university and education. It could be for housing. That's not equal. But I think that, um, again, because, I mean, I, I'll tell you that because I live outside the U.S., um, I get treated totally differently once people hear my American accent. So is that, that's a constitution, is that a constitutional right, really? Or is that because of just my Americanness and that really doesn't have anything to do with the constitution? Um, but because of my, U.S. passport, it's easier for me to find housing. Um, when I'm living in, in, in Switzerland, it was easier for me to find housing um, in South Africa uh, because of because I had a U.S. passport. Um, so those things are, those are benefits that we probably don't think about and you probably wouldn't ever experience or use when you're in the U.S. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons why I really wanted to have this conversation was because in my eyes, like, I really do see people equally, like everyone's humanity, everyone's life is worth the same, you know, but having worked in medicine, like there was a experience that I had like over 10, over 10 years ago, I was talking to a very educated friend, you know, he's black and gay and a doctor. And I had asked him, you know, what was it harder to be? Is it harder to be black or gay? And he was telling me that in his experience, it's always been harder to be black. And that was ten, over 10 years ago when there was like less awareness for being gay than there is now. You know, there's much more understanding now. Or recently, I mean, this one really struck me because I didn't realize that people could still be carrying a burden. You know, I was talking to this patient who was changing his insurance plans. And in the town of Santa Cruz, this, this black patient was asking me, do you know of any doctors who are willing to take on Black patients? <laughs> that just shocked me that he even had to ask a question like that because then what was happening in his life that, you know, made, have, made him have to, like, think about that, you know? Like, I wasn't aware that people could still be carrying this burden. No, I would, I would... So if you're if you're asking if there's a burden with blackness, um, there is. I think there is a certain level of 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 burden that you carry when you are when you are black, and you know. But that burden it, it exists. I don't think it's just a, a unique issue to the United States. I think it's a it's an issue just globally, and. Um, and I say this because in the U.S., yes, we have our systems that are not the best. And whether, whether it's health care, again, housing, transportation, access to education, access to jobs, all these things, all these resources that we need to, to live, um, they, they are disproportionately inaccessible by Black people. And some of it is a product of history and some of it is just um, just a lack of awareness in terms of where to access um, resources. Um, but I think the thing is that in the United States, information is so readily available that you would think everybody would just know where to find these resources, but it's, it's, just, it's not the case. 
And to the about the the patient that you're talking about, I'm not surprised that you still have, even though medicine is supposed to be um, empathetic and caring. Um, there's there are elements of supremacy that exists across the board, regardless of industry. Period. And um, but when you think about when I think about like the burden and the cost to be of being black, you know, I think of like when I was in South Africa, they used to, they talk about the black tax. So the black tax is, you know, um, a black person goes to university, gets their education, does really well, starts to make an income and their income is not just for themselves. Their income is for the entire family. So the government's going to tax you, but then you got to pay your back, your, your tax to the community. So that's not, um, because you don't help others in your family and such. Yes, yes, yes. So, and that the black tax, I know the black tax exists in the U S I have friends who, you know, um, they, they do this, they got to help, you know, their aunts, their uncles, their cousins. I mean, I think the black tax exists all over the world, you know? And so when you think about wealth and, and, and why certain groups of people can create multi-generational wealth where money gets passed down from one generation to the next, if you're paying a tax to your entire village, there's not very much money left when, you, when you're done paying all that tax, right? So there isn't the resources to actually create the kind of wealth that it takes to start having generational wealth unless you can actually build something that's, you know, build your own enterprise and your own business where you have excess income that you can start to have generational wealth. But so, yeah, there is, there is a burden. And I think the black tax is something that I see it in Europe. I've seen it in South Africa. I see it in the United States. So it exists. And, and, and part of it is that you do get, um, you just don't have the resources or the access to be able to access even more resources so that you can get above that, just barely making it point. It's ironic that there, you know, for some people, there really could be a cost for success, you know? Mm-hmm. Definitely. It's just such an interesting way to think of it, too, you know? Like, you would think that reaching success is amazing and noble, but to help out others, you know, who may not have had the same opportunities, there's a cost. It's a cost, but I don't think that, you know, when I look at some of my friends that I met in South Africa, or um, I'm just trying to think of, you know, like some of our friends that we went to Wellesley with who, who contribute their, who pay their black tax, um, I don't think they see it as a burden. It's more as like, it's just part of the responsibility. It's just something mm-hmm. you do. Um, and I think there's a certain sense of, this is one of the reasons why, um, you know, you go to school. This is one of the reasons why you try to get ahead. And mm-hmm. um, it's to be able to contribute to your village, your your community, the people that help you up, you know. And help others rise with you in a way. I was only briefly um, laughing at that because I had to pay an Asian tax, you know? <laughs> you did? But that Asian I was helping wasn't doing too badly, you know? You paid your Asian tax? There's an Asian I tax? I had to pay an Asian tax, yeah, because, you know, crazy relative felt like she deserved part of the success or whatever it is, you know? Really? Interesting. But she didn't need the help, but still, you know? <laughs> but I think that's the thing. Like, if she felt like she... she... She felt it was like entitled. living vicariously. Yes. It was like kind of like a vicarious thing. But I think what you describe is something totally different. Like yeah. there's a love aspect to it, you know, where I mean, you like, help others rise as well who are yeah. less fortunate. Absolutely. Like I I think of like like for my master's thesis, I spent I did research on um, people who worked in hospitality industry in Cape Town. And so tourism is one of these industries that was at post-apartheid that was really, um, the government really invested a lot in, the South African government invested a lot in as a way to get people out of poverty, particularly black people out of poverty. 
And so in doing my research with these workers who worked at one of the national parks in Cape Town, um, one of the things that I noticed is that many of them, particularly the ones who were on the wait staff or they did the event planning or they were the salespeople who did the, um, uh, they sold programs to get corporations to come have events at the park. Many of them came from outside of South Africa. They came from Zimbabwe, Zambia, Botswana, um, Mozambique, and they would come to Cape Town to work so that that way they can send money home. And I was really like surprised by that because many of them also, what they did was they, they lived in um, the townships. So, and they lived in what we would call informal housing shacks really mm-hmm. it's just tin metal housing like tenement kind of thing yeah right? it's mm-hmm. really basic absolute poverty absolute then. poverty and no indoor plumbing and they lived in an super meager circumstances and in some cases they made money they were probably some of the more well-to-do people in the sense that they made some of the higher income uh relatively speaking but a good, um, from my research, a good like 45 to 50 percent, yeah, about 40 percent of their income was going home. So they were supporting, in some cases, 10, 15, 20 people at home, at home. Not And then within their own household, they still have their kids, their husband, and whoever else lives with them. But back home, they're paying the school fees, they're buying medicine. They're paying for this one's getting married. They're paying for this one just had a bit like they're spending. They're sending money everywhere. They become the the bank for the family. So, I mean, when when I saw that level of black tax, I was like, wow. So yeah, it's an, it's just a whole other level of appreciation for what it means for people to support their to support their community Mm -hmm. do you think the black tax exists in america absolutely absolutely because um i know some of the people that we went to college with that they're more established now and they paid for you know this cousin that cousin this niece um aunts um you know siblings uh, for their, so they contribute to their education. Um, they contribute to their parents, you know, housing, living expenses, uh, making sure that their parents, in some cases, rent is paid on time. Mm-hmm. I have a few, I know a few people who paid um, property taxes because some of those property tax bills come and it's like a whole mortgage. Yeah. And, um, and they paid it. So it definitely exists in the United States. It just exists at a level that is different for us because the dollars are higher. And um, I think by virtue of where we went to school, um, the kind of incomes that, that, that some of the people that we're, that are in our social circles, they're higher, but the pain's still the same in a sense, you know? So it, it may not sound like paying for contributing towards your, your cousins, you know, Emory or UT Austin, or mm-hmm. like, it may not sound like, oh, you're just paying for their college tuition. Yeah. But that college tuition is, you know, yeah, it's a lot of it's money. Exorbitant. <laughs> <laughs> so if you can contribute, you know, three, four, five thousand dollars, you helping your cousin out, that's that's good. That means they don't have to take out those loans. So that's mm. good. I thought that was really interesting what you said, you know, that some people in the U.S., even in this generation, 2020, have access to less information. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that when you look at, you know, because we're, we're all socialized in, in uh, different circles, you know, um, and... The kids, I think one of the things that I realized when I went to Wellesley was that we, that Wellesley bubble was truly a bubble. 
um, a super privileged, super privileged. And I remember her, uh, going home with some people or just being around some people and hearing the kind of, just hearing about the kind of life that they lived mm-hmm. and with their maids and where you they- You mean went. at school? Yeah. Mm-hmm. With their maids and where they vacationed or where they went to summer camp, where they went to school, like for high school, uh, where they went for summer camp. And you're just like, wow. So that's how the other side of the fence, that's how they live. And you realize that, you know, we, we all are not, um, we don't all have access to the same information. I didn't have access to most of the information they had access to. So it only makes sense that like, sometimes when I speak to my own nephew, the information that he has access to is totally different to what I had access to. And, um, and they're in Arkansas, um, and they go to a regular public school. So they, by virtue of where they are geographically in the United States and who they're socializing with, even though when, even though we live in a highly connected world, the kind of information that is penetrating his bubble are completely different. Mm hmm. And sometimes not even knowing where to look exactly. for the right information. Exactly. Yeah. So you won't know, you know, like, um, I mean, some of the, the, like, I went to all these, like, science and math camps growing up because I sought them out. And, um, but that's not, those aren't areas of interest for him. Mm-hmm. So he's not going to seek that kind of information out. You know, um, I went to a math and science boarding school because I was determined to get out of the regular public school and my parents supported it, but he's very happy where he's at, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, but he's happy with it. But the difference is that because of where I went to high school, that's how I ended up at Wellesley, Mm -hmm. which kind of put me on a totally different path than um, the path that he's going to be on. And there's no value judgment in the paths. It's just that um, our lives are, are different and that's okay. Yeah. Or even something is like even simpler, like even like voting, right? Right. Some people don't know that you can do mail-in ballot. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. Not knowing when that information is available, but then maybe it's more available to people like us, you know? Or you have to seek it out. Because when I moved yeah. to Switzerland, um, I did not look into, I didn't vote in any of the midterms. Um, and I didn't because I couldn't, I did not want to prioritize the time into looking into how to look, into looking into um, the process of sending in mail-in ballots and things like that. Plus, I wasn't, and I wasn't sure, am I still an Indiana resident or, like, which state should I be registering in and all that kind of stuff. But because voting was really important to me for the 2020 um, election, in 2019, I was already looking into that stuff. I got myself mm-hmm. engaged in the right organizations. <laughs> I met the right people. They walked me through the steps. I sent in my papers way ahead of time. All of that. So my priorities, I made it a priority um, to really look into the things that were important to me. Sola, may I ask you? hmm What did you feel looking at the George Floyd video? What did I feel looking at it? Oh, wow. Um... I was shocked. I couldn't look at it. And this was, so I was in Switzerland and I, I, I live in Switzerland. So, I, and I haven't left since the whole COVID thing happened or started. Um, and I think it was really difficult to watch because I've lived outside the U S now for four years, over four years. And when you travel abroad, you know, you get to experience a different culture. When you live abroad, you get to see yourself and your country from the outside. So you get to see the good and the bad. And I think a lot of people 
um, from the outside looking at the U.S. were shocked. I was shocked and um, angry. I turned my phone off because I just didn't want to talk to any more Europeans to help them understand because I was just exhausted. <laughs> I was like, no, nah, man, I am not. I just, I can't right now. Yeah. You know, and they're like, what's happening in your country? I was like, I don't know. I really don't. And um, because I think the thing is, we would like to think that we're beyond, we're a post-racial society, blah, blah, blah. But really not. But at the same time, you know, you know, there are protests everywhere. There are protests even here in Switzerland about it, um, about racial justice. The university had a whole thing about it. Every company, I felt it, like even in Switzerland. But the thing is, as a black person existing in you know, again, outside the U.S., I felt like it was a bit hypocritical in some cases for Europeans or even African nations to be pointing at the United States because I felt mm-hmm. like y'all are guilty too. It exists everywhere, you're saying. Y'all y'all are guilty of this too. <laughs> but y'all are pointing fingers at the U.S. like y'all some holier-than-thou or, you know, countries, and you're not. And I'm glad you're protesting, but your daily lives are actually no different than, you know, some of our crazy fellow uh, white citizens in the U.S. It's just that because, I mean, in Europe, for example, they don't acknowledge race in most of their documents. They acknowledge nationality. So Mm -hmm. um, when I fill out documents... Um, I'm American, so it's based on my nationality, my passport. And they categorize everybody based on their passports. But I am a black person. But in none of the documentation that you'll see, whether I'm in Switzerland or I'm trying to think in South Africa. In South Africa, they acknowledge race. But in Switzerland, they don't. And in most of Europe, they don't. France the UK, they don't. And so you can hide under this guise of not being racist or uh, discriminatory because you don't acknowledge something that you actually do acknowledge on a daily basis. So, but you don't document it and so therefore you don't track it. So there are, um, I mean, I can, I've lost count of the number of times when I've gone shopping and all of a sudden when I speak in my very American English, I get treated totally differently. I get acknowledged differently. And so even though we look at the George Floyd situation and how dehumanizing he was treated and how trivially he was treated, um, the same thing happens everywhere all over the world. Mm Can I ask you, I guess it's kind of like two questions, but in regards to being a Black American woman in Switzerland, do they, do you feel like you're treated differently based on how they see you? And then when you open your mouth and have the American accent? Yes. How are you treated when you didn't open your mouth and you don't show them that you have an American accent? How do you feel? Um, I get followed. In stores, I've been followed in stores. Wow. Um, I've been ignored. Uh, if I'm like standing and I need attention and I'm politely waiting, I'm just ignored. Um, those are the most common. Um, but I've been followed. Definitely been followed multiple times. That I just keep my fingers out. I. I this is where the um the black american training comes really handy which is you either keep your hands in your pocket and you don't move you don't take them out because you don't want to touch nothing or look like you're grabbing something and putting Mm -hmm. it in your pocket or you keep your fingers out and you leave your fingers out so that that way everybody sees everything so that there's no perception of you taking anything um i don't take my backpack if i can avoid it unless if i'm going to the grocery store i take my shopping bag um but, um, but yeah, I just make sure because 
there's they think you're going to steal. Sola, that saddens me so much because most people don't have to think that way. When they leave their house, they don't have to think twice about what they're carrying, like a backpack or not. But the fact that like it seems like you're unconsciously and consciously aware of it. Um, yeah, know? but for the, I think the part of the reality is that... Um, I mean, I think part of it is that, especially in Switzerland, a lot of, many of the Black people are are refugees, or, um, or I mean, they're refugees for the most part, and so they don't have as many opportunities, um, and so I look, I mean, I look like them. I'm Black. Um, I think the difference is that I've been told that I dress very. So sometimes I, I intentionally wear a baseball cap or a visor or something that makes me look very American. Um, because then it then at least I just look different, mm-hmm. you know, um, because I don't, I mean, being profiled, we get profiled. My other black friends, because I do have other black friends here who are also American or um, they are, Africans who grew up in other European countries and now they live in Switzerland. I mean, they talk about it. We all get profiled. Can I ask you, like, as a as a Black American in the U.S., how do you feel like your daily activities were affected? Like, when you leave the house, what were you aware of? I think the difference is that in the U.S., we have laws in place who in inhibit profiling you know um so i wouldn't um i wouldn't worry as as much i mean for one thing i was usually in a car so um and then you're given a shopping bag when you go shopping in the u.s in europe you're not given a shopping bag you get charged Mm -hmm. for them so you have to bring your own um, and so you get charged here now too. Oh, you do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, good. Yay! Good for the environment. Reuse, reuse. Um, so you you bring your own, but the thing too is, I think like here, I don't own a car, so especially in the winter, you have all your layers. Um, so I'm always careful that I don't look like my pockets are too big because I don't want anyone thinking I'm packing a gun or whatever. And um. And I don't want to look too uh, threatening because I've got all my layers on and and things like that. And I think that like, so when you're in the U.S., you have your car, you don't, my layers aren't as heavy as what they are here. They were never that heavy. So I didn't look as bulky or threatening um, because I'm running inside. I don't have to carry as much. Um, and and, And then again, too, you can't. Profiling in a store and following people is not something that I felt like I had to worry about as much in the U.S. Plus, I lived mm-hmm. in a community where you kind of become known and people know your face. And so they don't think anything of it when you walk in, you know. Whereas I feel like here, I mean, I'm trying to think. Even though my face might be known, I still feel like a stranger sometimes, mm-hmm. many times. It's not the same. And plus, I don't speak German, you know, which might make it different versus like when you're in the States, I speak English, you get to know the cashier, you small talk with them. The next time you come back in, they're like, hey, you're like, hey, and y'all know each other. So that familiarity I don't have it here. So I feel Mm -hmm. like I'm always threatening. You know, when we reconnected on Facebook, um, you had told me that uh, there was an incident that happened to you, I guess, before you left Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. Can you describe for us what that was? And have you had many of those in your life? Um, It was just one of those moments where I felt like the universe was telling me that it was it was time to leave. and, And this was like the big sign. I was walking down the street and um, in downtown Indianapolis, and this older white man came up to me, and he put his hand on my shoulder, which was kind of 
shocking. And then like he, he literally touched you. He touched me. He put his hand on, mm-hmm. on my shoulder and he yelled in my face that I was a party nigger. And I was like, a what? I was I was so confused because I was like, what is he saying? And um and he said it again, like I was deaf. And um and he's and I was just so shocked and and just taken aback by the whole experience that I didn't know what was going on. I my heart was racing, like racing, because it came out of nowhere. I was minding my own business, and this man comes and puts his hand on me. He's like yelling in my face, and so I, when I finally like snapped to and and regained my focus, I took his hand off my shoulder, and just kept walking. And, um, but I was shaken. Like I was shaken. Yeah. Um, and I was going to go meet a friend. I went to go meet my friend. I didn't even talk about it to my friend because I was just shaken. And, uh, and then when I was on my way home, I got in my car, I was on my way home. I called my mom and I told her everything. And she's like, why didn't you call the cops? I'm like, who, who's going to believe me? Like, really? Um, and uh, and and so I I think I took that moment, like I said earlier, as a sign that the universe was saying, "This is not this environment is no longer safe for you." And this is 2016, then. Yeah, this was like mm-hmm. June, July 2016, and I think this is the universe saying that it's this is is it's time to go. This is no longer safe for you. It doesn't mean it's not safe period. It's just for me, this was my, this was my kind of wake up call that you got to go. This is not, this is, you know, like the frank and utter disrespect, you know, that apparently another human being was showing to another human being, Mm -hmm. you know, it's crazy, but we're all, I mean, honestly, like maybe the truth is with ignorance, we're all, we could be all be capable of that. Hopefully not, but like you know, it's just like with ignorance, for him to like even go into your personal boundary to say those words, you know, to feel like he has a right to even touch you, and with those words, you know. Yeah, but I think the thing is, if I remember correctly, because it's all coming back to me, this happened shortly after the Republican National Convention, so it was pol- politically mm-hmm. motivated. In the sense that he did say that it is Trump's America now. Like he said that mm-hmm. too. Um, um, and and I remember thinking that I just was really uncomfortable. But I think there was a, a certain level of lethal. Um, like, because I just, I also remember around the same time people talking about how they don't like being politically correct and how. They feel like they have to be so politically correct now, and now they can't fully express themselves. And I think for me, what I took from some of those comments is that, okay, so basically your politically correctness means or means that now you have to respect my humanity as, you know, as a person. And so by eliminating politically correctness, now you can disrespect my humanity and you can attack me and say whatever you want to say to me whenever you want to say it to me. And and that's where I think I I think that's where for me I, I realized that there's really no there's not going to be any winning or happy medium in in this context of uh, of um, of Indianapolis for me because I'm not going to stop being black. You know, mm-hmm. so if I'm not going to stop being black, then I'm just going to have to live with being attacked or being undermined or being trivialized because of my blackness. Because there's a whole group of other people who feel like it's open season to be as mean and evil as they want to be. Sola, you know, in the U.S., we hear so many stories of you know, black men being stopped by police in their car, 
you know, and how one should act as a black man when you're stopped by the police. As a black American, how do you feel when you're stopped by the police? Oh, okay. Um, first of all, I have only been stopped in my recollection twice. And to be truthfully honest, I was speeding. <laughs> I deserve to be stopped. <laughs> there was no taillight. There was nothing. I was just... As I deserve to be stopped too, but I was stopped more than two times. <laughs> so, yeah, I have to confess that they had every right to stop me. I was going above the speed limit. I was speeding. Um, but I was nervous. You know, I handled it, paid my bit, paid my ticket. It's all good. But were you nervous about the ticket or the encounter? Um, I was more nervous about the ticket because I knew I was speeding. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, I couldn't, you know, like I was speeding. I was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the difference between my experience, you know, because it's a very important question you're asking about the ticket versus the encounter. I was more worried about the cost of the ticket because I knew I was doing something bad. Yeah. Uh, versus where a lot of my black male friends, they're more frightened of the encounter and how they're going to be perceived and whether or not um, people thought they were um, threatening just by their physical, their physical, their physical nature. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I, I, I think that the two are very different. Um, I was never afraid of the encounter, but, you know, I have a nephew and I have a dad and, um, and I think that for them, yeah, I, I I worry about, you know, what kind of experience they're going to have, you know, kind of experiences they're going to have. My dad, he's a big guy. He's really tall. You know, my nephew's really tall. So, um, someone could say that they're threatened by them. So, I mean, it's a fear that mm-hmm. exists in all our minds. And so you just pray for them. Do you feel like Black American men have it harder? Um, with the police? I guess so, yeah. And in general, I guess. But um, I mean, I think with the police, they definitely have it harder. Like, hands down, they got it harder. In general... You know, I think black men in general have it pretty hard because, you know, regardless of where they are in the world, the system is not created for them. Um, And I think that with being a man, you know, there's certain responsibilities that come with that. And sometimes those responsibilities um, versus where they are in their life are severely outmatched. Or they're just, they're not really aligned. And it creates a pressure on them that, you know, it just, it weighs them down. I mean, I saw it in South Africa. Um, I see it with these men, with black men here in Switzerland. And they're just trying to get by. And many of them, you know, they have responsibilities back home, whichever countries they're coming from. And, um... And, you know, they're just trying to make it. But, you know, I, I, I've had the fortune of of working in a few um, or in one uh, Swiss company part-time. I never saw one black man, you know. And I'm just thinking, wow, I was the only black person, period. Um, so... I'm like, wow, so no black people ever apply for jobs here or are they just not hired, you know? And so you you see that and you wonder, how are these people making, trying to make it? And it's hard, you know, it's hard. It's hard on a black man, regardless of where they are in the world and their ability to access opportunities. Yeah, because the apparent burden that you described, like when you walk out the door, like as a black American woman in Switzerland, I wonder if that's more obvious for a black American man walking out the door in the U.S. What do you mean? 
like making sure that they don't look too threatening or their pockets or something like that? You know, I think I will. What I will say is that in the U.S., we are very aware of of these perceptions of looking threatening, and or even a simple thing as a hoodie. Yeah, you know, yeah, many people wear hoodies. While why is it threatening on like a black male kid? Yeah, but black you know? people in the U.S. are very aware of that how we're perceived, and therefore we adapt accordingly. And adjust accordingly. Um, I will say that, particularly in Europe, they're not as aware. Because sometimes I see these people and I see what they're wearing. And and they look, they, I can see how people could perceive them as threatening. And they still do it. And I'm just like, are you guys just not aware? Or do do your families just not teach you to be aware? And I think it's it's unfortunate. I mean, I have a good friend that... Yeah. But it makes me kind of sad hearing that because most people don't even have to be aware that they have to be aware. Do you know what I mean? They don't, but the thing is, again, I think the level of, I think the level of consciousness of race in Europe is such that I think Euro- Europeans sometimes pretend it doesn't exist. But, By not acknowledging race, but it exists. But it exists, right? and they do mm-hmm. treat people differently. So my ammo is to be, is to err on a side of caution into my American behavior, which is be careful, be careful how you dress, what you're touching, don't be too bulky. Like I, I put my American hat on just to be on my safe side. Um, With the American flag? I, if I could fly an American flag, I would, damn it. <laughs> I would. I would fly my American flag. Air on the side of caution. <laughs> you know, <laughs> practice making sure you don't have too much bulk, you know, and, and um, you know, like as if you are, as if I was like a black kid in the U.S., you know, because like one of my friends, she has um. She has a son that he's brown. And I was like, oof. And I was telling her, I was like, yeah, you know, all this hip hop style is okay in the videos, but don't do that in the streets. Because I'm sure the cops here, I don't think they're any different. Period. I don't think they're any different. And I and I think they will they will pull a kid aside and make assumptions that are unnecessary if they need to. So I, I, I don't put it past, past them. Like I said, I get profiled and followed in stores mm-hmm. quite normally. So um, I don't. Um, um, and then, of course, when I get to the cash register and they start speaking to me and they're like, oh, and I'm like, no, 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 just check me out. You know, let me pay my money and move on. Um <laughs> Sola, what's it like to be a Black American in South Africa? To be a Black American in South Africa, wow. Um, that was, I'm actually processing that question right now. Um, that was really hard because um, I think it was the first time in my life as a, I mean, I think my Americanness. When you're in the United States, or when I'm in the United States, I think my Americanness doesn't really, it doesn't really resonate. It doesn't really mean mm-hmm. anything. It's not so obvious, right? It's not so obvious. Yeah. Um, when I'm in South Africa, it was extremely obvious to me in a way that I just wasn't really prepared in some ways to really um, understand. Um, I... I had to make peace and recognize that I was super privileged relative to most. And I, for both of my trips there, one I was there for like six months, one I was there for like two months. I, for both trips, I made my arrangements via Airbnb, like where I was going to stay. And so by default, um, because where the University of Cape Town is in the suburbs of Cape Town, so by default, I end up staying with white South Africans in their property, 
for a property that's owned by a white South African. And on a few occasions, um, I would get in conversations with my host or whomever was uh, in charge. And I would realize that they're speaking to me as an American without my blackness. And it was bizarre Mm -hmm. because I was like, wait a minute, this person's talking to me like I'm not a black person. Wow. That's interesting. And, you know, and what does that mean then? Like, how were they talking to you? So I'll give you an example. So in Cape Town, they do this thing called load sharing. And load sharing is a way to manage the power grid. And so what happens is different parts of town, the power would be shut off. And they would rotate that a few times. And so two to three times a day, about two times a day, really, for two hours, there would be no power. And I remember saying, and um, so the second time I was there, this was happening a lot. And I remember making a comment to, I remember making a comment to my host about why do they have to keep doing this load sharing thing? And so she starts to talk about, well, after apartheid or um, as a part of the reconciliation after apartheid, you know, we had to give the control of the government to the blacks and and the blacks messed up everything like they always do. And I was just like, wow. And she's <laughs> But I was just so in shock that she said this, you know, like, you know, like everything. I was like, what do you mean? It's like, like, what do you mean? Like everything It's like, well, Mm -hmm. they mess up the power grid. They don't fix the roads and this. And then she just kept going on about everything that the blocks ruined. And I was just like, Mm -hmm. you know, and so it was just one of these moments that I realized because she kept saying the blocks, you know, and I'm thinking, I'm a black person. Yeah. And you're just saying this to me, but for me, but in that moment, I realized, oh, she sees me as American. She doesn't see me as black. Mm-hmm. And um, and that was really like, whoa, this is different. Um, and so there's there's experiences like that that I had. Um And then when I would, you know, I always try to talk to the Uber drivers, took a lot of Uber, um, Mm -hmm. and most of them are all black. And most of them didn't come from South Africa. They came from everywhere, all over the continent. Mm -hmm. And um, so just to kind of get to know their experience and and what they thought and things like that. And so that was was really... um, it was just really it was it was difficult to have this experience with white South Africans. And you realize that they still have, for the most part, a concept of themselves as being it's it's they have this victim mentality that I just am like, I just don't get. I'm like, mm-hmm. y'all got all the Who money. does? White South Africans. Who has a, mm-hmm. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. I'm like y'all control all the money, like all the money. And but then, but they're like the blacks are destructive. The blacks are this. The blacks are that. The blacks can't get their stuff together. And I'm like, but how many generations y'all been here? You know, and and y'all got all the money. Mm-hmm. Um. So this and and then what then what you have is because of apartheid, there's such a imbalance access to education that most of the black schools were like they spent like for every dollar that was spent on a white school there's probably like 10 cents spent on a black school and that's so it's not, the money's not equally distributed then yeah but that's been since mm-hmm. resources yeah but that's mm-hmm. since like 
the beginning of apartheid in the 1950s. Okay, so I mean, yeah. so this goes back multiple generations of undereducated blacks, and it goes back <clears> on that <throat> what you said before, how information is not like equally distributed. No, you know, yeah, no. So I think for me as a black person in South Africa, it's uh, particularly in Cape Town. Cape Town is one of the most beautiful cities in the world, hands down, and. Um, <clears throat> But, you know, my first trip there, I did a research project with four black South Africans who came of age during apartheid. And the four of them were some of the first business owners post-apartheid. And their stories of just kind of building their businesses and, and, and just fighting it out and staying true to their principles and making sure that they only took on projects that empowered their communities was heroic. It was very heroic and inspiring. Um, But, you know, but they were the ones who inspired me to make sure that I come back and I speak to people who were even lower on the social, on the social ladder to truly understand like what their challenges were to even get a tiptoe into the middle class, which was really difficult for for most people, if not impossible. So <clears throat> when I was in South Africa, I felt very, I felt very privileged to be um, as a Black American. Um, in some cases, I felt guilty, and and it made me wonder, like, what am I gonna do, or how am I gonna contribute to the continent eventually when I do. Uh, contribute. So what is that going to look like? And who do I want to impact eventually when I do, you know, contribute back to the, back to the continent? So, yeah. So you're so beautiful inside and out. And thank you for inspiring us today and for being so willing to have an honest conversation. Thank you. Thank you. See you next time on another edition of Lost or Found. Please don't forget to subscribe, tell your friends, and write us a great review. For more information, visit our website, drlostorfound.com.